Historically, health research involving Indigenous peoples has been very Western-centric in its approach. And yet Indigenous peoples have many solid research methodologies and perspectives that should not be dismissed. There's room for a collaborative approach to health research involving Indigenous peoples. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for the Canadian Medical Association Journal. Today, I'm speaking with two of the authors of an analysis article published in CMAJ that looks at enhancing and improving health research among Indigenous peoples in Canada. Dr. Chelsea Gable is Métis from Rivers, Manitoba. She is an assistant professor at McMaster University in the Department of Health, Aging and Society and the Indigenous Studies Program. She holds a Canada Research Chair in Indigenous Wellbeing, Community Engagement and Innovation. Dr. Stacey Margerison is a pediatric hematologist-oncologist at the McMaster Children's Hospital, as well as assistant clinical professor and non-Indigenous researcher in the Department of Pediatrics at McMaster University. They co-wrote the analysis article with their colleague, Sarah Hyatt. Dr. Gable and Dr. Margerison are joining me today from Hamilton, Ontario, to discuss their article. Welcome, Stacey and Chelsea. Hi, thanks. Good morning. So, Chelsea, can you tell me about the history of health research in particular in Canada and how this has led to mistrust of health researchers um, among Indigenous people? Yeah, so I think, you know, research undertaken on Indigenous lands and on Indigenous people has historically resulted in a phenomenon that Indigenous peoples are the most researched people in the world, right? And until most, I guess until recently, um, most research has been conducted on Indigenous people, cultures and lands without permission, um, without consultation, without involvement of the people being researched. Um, research activities often cause community members to feel that they have been researched to death uh, without benefit to their community, resulting in what we often call research fatigue. Um, you know, I can remember doing my own PhD research on Manitoulin Island back in 2011, and, you know, I think there were you know, 15, 16 researchers on the community and, you know, it, it, it becomes confusing and it sort of becomes, well, well, who are you and what are you, what, what kind of research are you doing? And the ethical conduct of researchers has also been questionable. Too many times in the past, researchers have used their role of authority or position of power to oppress those they research. Um, they've disregarded the community's cultural, traditional, shared knowledge, um, indigenous peoples have been weighed. They have given blood, urine, hair samples. They've given their stories. Um, they've explained their existence, um, been interviewed, questioned, observed, followed, interpreted, analyzed, right, written about for years. And then from this data, reports are generated, right? Books and theses are written. Um, papers are delivered at conferences. Journal articles are published. Um, and often these researchers provide their own, often false interpretations of what people have shared. Ian Mosby, a scholar, a historian, revealed that at least 1,300 Indigenous peoples, most of them children, were used as test subjects in the 1940s and 50s by researchers probing the effectiveness of vitamin supplements. Linda Smith, who we, we quote in the article, notes that the word research is probably one of the dirtiest words in the Indigenous world's vocabulary. When we talk about research in many Indigenous contexts, it stirs up silence, um, it conjures up bad memories, 
it raises, you know, a, a smile that is knowing and, and distressful. So I think a critical importance to Indigenous research then is that it benefits our people, our communities, and our nations. And all researchers working in an Indigenous context have an ethical responsibility and obligation towards Indigenous people's culture and the environment. And often for us, as, as Indigenous people, the stakes are so much higher, right? Because the scars left by past colonial relationships mean that research partnerships must, above all, ensure a voice for Indigenous peoples in designing and carrying out research that contributes to their social well-being and improved health rather than the priorities of academic state or, or other partners. And, and I think sort of expanding on that point, the, the nutrition studies that Ian Mosby goes into, um, and we've provided a little bit more context for that in, in the article, and so I'd encourage people to, to go there and use that as a starting point for reading about those historic atrocities. Like the research community understands the complications of the research that was conducted as part of, for example, the Nazi Holocaust experiments. But so few Canadian health researchers know about these nutrition experiments that happened during residential schools um, on children, where children were denied appropriate food to see what the effects of not having appropriate food was, or to give them supplements from supplement companies to see if that would counteract the effects of malnutrition. Um, these children were not in the care of their families. And, and these research studies were conducted by physicians. And so it's not hard to believe that Indigenous communities would have a reluctance to engage with physicians that are non-Indigenous looking at Indigenous health research, given this horrific context of, of these things that happen that most Canadian health researchers don't know about, let alone are able to have that the humility to understand that that is the history that that they need to to move forward knowing those pieces so all of this has led to various guidelines and statements on acceptable and ethical research on indigenous health which are in the tri-council policy statement tcps2 this policy is well-intentioned and yet as you explain in your article it, it may actually lead to further stigmatization of indigenous peoples can you explain the TCPS2, they were chapters, I mean, all of these chapters, and particularly Chapter 9, which is the chapter on Indigenous peoples, uh, was developed in consultation with Indigenous peoples. So, you know, the extent of con consultation and whether the policies protect all Indigenous interests is, is contested. And I'll go into that a little bit more Um so in practice, social science and health research in Canada more often follow the minimums required by the Canadian Tri-Council policy requirements. So previous to that, um, and my, my colleague, Dr. Carrie Barassa, who's the current um, scientific director for the Institute of Indigenous People's Health, um, she was one of the sort of leaders in developing the guidelines for health research involving Indigenous peoples. And at the time, that was a crucial and, and critical document in which research philosophy and practice were tied to the recognition of fundamental Indigenous rights and to the need to promote health through research that falls within Indigenous values and traditions. So one of the arguments has been that having, you know, two sets of guidelines, so having the CIHR guidelines for Aboriginal health research and the TCPS2, it was too confusing for universities and for ethics boards. 
So as a result, the CIHR guidelines for, for health research involving Indigenous peoples are no longer, we don't use them here at, at universities. Um, they're still available, but it's, we, the universities and ethics boards follow the TCPS2 guidelines. So, so my argument, and I know others sort of feel the same, is those who fought really hard to keep the CIHR guidelines on Indigenous health research have argued that Chapter 9 is a much softer and, and weaker document than the CIHR guidelines. So even though research agreements, for example, are strongly encouraged in TCPS2, they're not a requirement. Um, and there, there's some other examples as well. So even though I think TCPS2 is well-intentioned, we have the unintended effect of marginalizing health research in communities. So specifically, the understanding of community, as presented in the guidelines, possesses, I think, two key flaws, which effectively marginalize the access of communities in such an important um, part of funding. So first, I think it assumes a certain level in, of infrastructure that's simply not present in a lot of communities, right? So I'm Métis. Um, we don't have the same kind of communities that, say, First Nations living on reserve do. Right. So as such, I think the TCPS2 requires application and reporting criteria unlike unlikely to exist in communities like First Nations living on reserve. It assumes a, a landedness to community, right, like specific First Nations or settlement, which, though conceptually convenient, fails to account for the formation and survival of communities that aren't so easily recognized according to such such criteria. Right, so again, I'm, I'm thinking of the, the urban community or, you know, Métis communities. So the definition of community um, isn't so easily, you know, outlined in the, in the TCPS2 guidelines, which which complicates things. Yeah. yeah. Also, when you're looking at health research, if you're looking at rare and and uncommon conditions, um, for example, there's there's a, a requirement to um, adhere to OCAP principles. But if there isn't one community, if you have one child from this First Nation community and one child who lives in an urban community and one child who's, who's elsewhere, it's sort of impossible for a community to own that information. And so then many times health researchers will just give up. Um, and, and I think this is where we come back to the principle of, of engaging with Indigenous scholars um, because many people then have a broader understanding of the research landscape and of ethical conduct of research outside of, of the small purview that's provided by the TCPS2 guideline. Um, and that we then can move forward in, in a positive and, and ethically appropriate way, whereby communities don't feel like they are the subject, again, of, of being researched without participation. So in 2000, a set of ethical principles, which are, are referred to as OCAP, so they stand for ownership, control, access, and possession. So the idea is that it's supposed to sort of shape research conducted with Indigenous peoples in Canada. OCAP is really supposed to be about self-determination in research, right? Um, yeah. But it's, OCAP is a lot much harder. Again, it, it, it works very well in, in many sort of First Nations on reserve, you know, First Nations communities, but it's, it becomes more challenging and problematic to implement in, in many other Indigenous contexts and communities. Indigenous people actually do have many research methods and methodologies in their cultures. 
Can you give us some examples of these and perhaps tell us which research methodologies have been used successfully in Indigenous health research thus far? This is Chelsea. So I can, I can start. We talk about um, this in our article a little bit. Um, my, my colleague, Dr. Margaret Kovach, talks about Indigenous approaches to research and she talks about um, the conversational method to collect data. And so the, the conversational method originated from storytelling. And Dr. Kovach indicates that this method is actually found within Western research, but the conversational method in Indigenous research um, differs from its use in Western research in a, in a number of different ways. Um, it, it involves a, a connection to Indigenous knowledge, um, a location within an Indigenous paradigm. Um, it involves a, a relational nature, um, a purpose, which is often as you know, my other colleague who I referred to, Dr. Linda Smith, talks about as decolonizing. And so my, my own research draws on an arts-based method called photovoice. Um, and this is, a, this is a method that I'm really drawn to because it's community-based and gives participants cameras. And they're asked to take photographs to illustrate a certain theme or community issue. So I've worked with many Indigenous youth and elders um, using photovoice. And basically, you know, they, they take cameras, they go out and take pictures to look at a particular community issue. And they're, they're asked to provide their thoughts about the photographs they take as they relate to a specific theme. And then we collect the photographs and stories, we organize and we present them to an, to an audience. So in my case, um, we held a big community supper and art exhibit um, and invite the whole community out to look at the photos to talk about them. You bring, if you can, people who are influential, who have, you know, who, who are able to change policy, um, right? And, and it's the idea is to sort of be a catalyst for change and to encourage discussion. So, you know, in a lot of studies, and I talked about this earlier, um, Indigenous research and, and, and participants are, are recruited to show up and be tested by the researchers, right? And then they're not needed anymore. Um, we often call this, you know, helicopter research. Uh, people fly in, they collect data, and they leave, and the community doesn't hear from them again. Right? That's very problematic. And so participatory action research or community-engaged research proposes that the entire project, from its conception and design through every step of the research, is done by the participants. Um, when the research is finished, the participants themselves are able to own the data and they're able to decide how to publish or share this information. And I think that's really, really important. Um, and it's something that our readers need to know, um, you know, and, and physicians and, and health researchers who are interested in working with Indigenous people. So photo voice is an approach that I'm drawn to because it really puts the power back into the hands of the community. It's a process in which people, usually those with limited power, use photo images to capture aspects of their environment um, and experiences and share them with others. Um, it's a much more creative method. It's a method that fosters trust. It gives community members ownership over research data, and it really shifts the, the balance of power to community members. You know, images teach. Um, if we see red dresses, for example, we're reminded that 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 symbolizes murdered and missing Indigenous women in this country. Pictures and images can influence policy. 
Community members need to participate in creating and defining the images that shape helpful public policy. Um, and it really requires from the onset that you bring appropriate people and you bring community um, to the table to serve as an audience so that you can actually create positive policy change. So I yeah. stop there. It's, in this article, we really just provide a primer. Mm-hmm. And we provide a primer across a number of ideas and issues. And, and one of those is looking at methods and methodologies. And for many people who are highly engaged in research, and this is all they do, they really understand the difference between methods and methodologies, that methods are, are really those tools and that the methodology is your theoretical lens. And But you can incorporate Indigenous perspective in both of those aspects. And, and so we give people a couple examples of, of what those are, photo voice being one of those methods, um, other things like like the storytelling or conversational methods, things like symbol-based reflection. And then we talk about some of the philosophies or the, the, the methodologies behind research as well that people could incorporate. Now, that being said, I think it's very, we have to use caution. We're not giving a list of, of things that, that, indi- that non-Indigenous researchers can then sort of take and put in their pocket and just use. Um, and I think we've seen that happen sometimes with things like sharing circles, um, that, that sharing circles are sort of entering more the mainstream and that sometimes non-Indigenous people will, will use these and then think that they are being culturally respectful when actually it's more of a cultural appropriation. So I think with the lens of this introduction, we still need to urge caution and we need to urge collaboration. Um, that if you're going to use an Indigenous method or methodology, you want to engage with an Indigenous researcher who has that um, area of expertise that that we often in health research wouldn't engage a methodology that we or a method that we don't understand. Like a, a non-qualitative researcher wouldn't all of a sudden think that they're an expert in qualitative research and do it, um, that they would engage and collaborate with a qualitative researcher to make sure they're doing it properly. And And so while we're offering an introduction so that some of these things can then enter the mainstream in terms of being understood as being appropriate and have research power, um, we also don't want people to just pick them up and do them. I think that's a useful qualification. And and I really understand what you mean by this being a primer, because um, it's it's a kind of an article about having enough humility to begin the the start of the research at the level of the community and have the community drive it rather than tokenism, as you say, like appropriate a few methods and and still helicopter in. Yeah, this is Chelsea. And community-based participatory research, I mean, not everyone does community-engaged work, but it really allows the community to also have input into the types of methods and methodologies, approaches and frameworks that, you know, they would like to use or they see as strength um, in the research process. So we know many of these methods are robust, and yet there's resistance among Western people and research groups to incorporate some of these Indigenous methods in their research. Why do you think that is? I think the biggest problem is lack of understanding and knowledge. Um, A lot of the people who sit on granting agencies and who um, lead health research do so from the frame of knowledge that they already know and understand. Um, that all of us who who 
have been trained in Western medicine have grown up trained in Western medical methodologies and grown up with the scientific method. So we've all learned from from early days that if you're going to ask a question and you're going to quote unquote prove that this is your answer, you do it by doing a bit of background research, um, asking a question, making a hypothesis, coming up with a way to empirically prove um, over and over and over that that is your answer. Um, that in, in medicine, we're often told that just an anecdote is, is not, you can't treat people based on an anecdote. Um, yet those of us who work in really rare and unusual diseases often find that sometimes for one person, there is an answer that just fits for that one person and that, that there are exceptions to the rule. And I, I think that an Indigenous frame often is more holistic and, and is a broader-based view, um, but that when you then take it to, to journals and you take it to um, research granting agencies, that often folks dismiss what they don't know. Chelsea, you, yeah. do you want to speak to that? Sure. So, you know, I think, um, so my, my own work with Photo Voice, for example, um, you know, I've had to submit it to a number of journals, Um before it, it, it has finally been published, um, simply because, you know, reviewers don't see it as rigorous um, research, right? It's still Indigenous ways of knowing and, you know, even, you know, arts-based methods and Indigenous methods are still considered fluffy. So it's it's easy for me, for example, as an Indigenous scholar, I can publish my work in Indigenous journals. No problem. I published in many Indigenous journals. But if I want to get my work in, you know, journal, in, in medical journals or in, you know, journals that are related, related to public health, um, they get rejected. So that, as an Indigenous scholar, has long-term uh, implications and consequences for my career. Um, so I think, you know, we need to change the way that even reviewers at journals um, are, are reviewing these articles and to see, you know, um, to, to look at Indigenous ways of knowing, Indigenous knowledge as valid scientific knowledge. Um, you know, we have a new institute here at McMaster, the McMaster Indigenous Research Institute, and that that's really was the, the idea behind the institute is to, you know, support the Indigenous scholars um, on campus and, and to really kind of validate Indigenous knowledge as valid scientific knowledge. Yeah. And and I think what we can do from this this perspective, this paradigm, is, is to encourage journals and to encourage funding agencies to find scholars who have expertise and knowledge to sit on these granting agencies, to sit on review panels, to really provide a perspective and not just lean on people whose expertise is in some of the more um, historically bound quantitative medical methodology because you can still have a well-done photo voice study and you can have a poorly sure imagined photo voice study um, and, and it's important to bring in people who have that methodology expertise. I hear you as a medical editor I mean we need to we need to learn and continue learning about new methodologies and methods. In your article, and you've touched on this already at the beginning, in your article you describe the deficit discourse that originates from the kind of research that we currently publish in about Indigenous peoples. And you describe the risk of um, perpetuating a deficit discourse. Can you explain what you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. 
I think as a as a reader of the medical literature, um, this is often how Indigenous health is is um, described. Is that that it's described in a way that says Indigenous peoples' health is worse than the rest of Canadians in this way. Um, so, for example, when we look at TB, that the rates of TB in Indigenous communities are higher than in non-Indigenous communities. And when people think that they are describing why, they simply describe that there's issues with overcrowding, for example. Um, but that doesn't tell the whole story. That tells just that deficit story, that story of how Indigenous health is worse than other Canadian health, um, without telling the story of why there might be overcrowding, for example. And so in the article, we go into this, that if you're going to describe a deficit, you have to describe it in the colonial past, um, in, in a historical frame, and, and describe the residential school experience of these communities, to describe how the government is not um, aligned with the treaties of, of those people of that land. And that's why maybe a whole bunch of people are, are living in close quarters where, where TB can be spread. And so we've sort of discussed the issue of when you are going to describe a deficit, you have to describe it within the context. But even beyond that, um, there are many, many, many strengths of Indigenous communities. And to, to flip the switch and to flip the story and to talk about, about strengths is perhaps even more important than, than discussing these deficits or to frame a health issue and then frame it with a strength perspective. And I know, Chelsea, some of your research has done this. Mm -hmm. Do you want to go into that in a bit more detail? Yeah, so I think photo voice is also a great way to really, I mean, it, it is a great way to look at strength of communities. We've had, we've had enough research done on the problems of um, Indigenous issues in the century, right? A lot of researchers love to study um, to study us and to study, you know, focus on disease or focus on things like alcoholism and drug abuse, right? And and put a specific spin on it that makes Indigenous people sound like savages or, you know, um, Indigenous people can't take care of their kids. Um, they can't care for their children. And it, it perpetuates stereotypes um, and it continues to do this. And I think on that that point, before you get back to your mm -hmm. other point, it's really important to not identify those things as lifestyle choices. Yeah. That those aren't lifestyle choices. Yeah. We know well in the field of mental health that often people will self-medicate with alcohol. And when you have experienced the level of physical, psychological, sexual abuse that was in the residential school system, of course people are self-medicating yeah. with alcohol. Yeah. And we, we know that across the spectrum, but Often still, it's described as this is a lifestyle choice, and that can be turned on its head to then describe it as being inherent to Indigenous people, and that people see that as a weakness of Indigenous people, as opposed to a societal um, situation and a response to colonialism, yeah. response to residential schools. Yeah. Um, sorry to interject, no. but I feel like we really yeah really that am. often comes up, and and we really need to never do that yeah. and yeah. to place things in the context so, of actual history. Yeah. And I think that's the problem even in um, like journalism. And when we read articles, we don't, you know, we don't provide the context So providing that history every single time is, is very, very important. So 
you know, I think even, you know, you're talking about youth suicide, and we know it's a very real issue in communities right now. Um, we're, it's, it's, we're in crisis mode. But we also want to go out. I mean, I work with Indigenous youth and, and find out about, you know, what they what they like to do, um, like the, the strengths of the community or, or look at communities where maybe suicide rates are really low, like what, to look at some of these, what communities are doing and, and learn. So I, I think, you know, we talk about strength-based research and, you know, I think that's the kind of research when I talk about the Indigenous Mentorship Network programs and the Near Centers. That's the kind of research that we want to fund and to really work closely on, on issues. So that's a great take-home message for our readers. Always think about the context. For any non-Indigenous health researchers who are listening to this podcast, what other take-home messages do you have that they could use to encourage good partnership and successfully engage in Indigenous health research? We, we talk a bit in the article about allyship, and I would encourage people to, to sort of have a read through that and, and to understand that. And, and that requires approaching Indigenous health research by approaching communities, developing partnerships, developing relationships with people to whom you are accountable. And you're not accountable for this 10 minutes of the project you're doing, but you're accountable over the long term. Um, we need people to read the guidelines, to understand not only the history, but the context understand the ethical principles and adhere to them and, and not just the bare minimum, but find out if the community you're engaging with has their own research guidelines or research principles. Don't just check the box of, of doing what's necessary for the TCPS2. Like really engage with the community that you're working with. Come to this work with humility. You don't have that lived experience. So you can't presume to be an expert in Indigenous health. Um, only Indigenous people are experts in themselves. And, 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 and we need to know that being well-meaning is really inadequate. Just coming to it with good intentions is not enough. You need to come to this work with an understanding that you're probably going to screw it up at some stage. You're probably going to make mistakes. You have to be willing to do that, and you have to be willing to be open and honest. And even if you think your research is a great idea, if the community you want to work with doesn't think it is, you need to not do it. it. It really, really needs to come from the community to say, this is what we want to know. This is what we need to know. Um, Chelsea, do you have thoughts? Yeah. I mean, I think it's just that. I think um, you need to understand and do the research um, on the community. What, what's the community about? Who are your participants that you're working with? Right. And, and as I said in, in my earlier comment, you need to take the time to understand Indigenous history um, and how that impacts community life. You know, you need to create time and space um, and actions in your research plan to develop these community relationships at the beginning of and throughout the duration of your research project. And once you're done, um, you know, I, I feel that any community I work with, I'm never done. Um, I always have those relationships with communities, um, even years after I'm finished a particular research project. Right. If they have questions or need me for something else, I'm there. Right. And know your sort of potentiality. What are the knowledge and power dynamics involved and where are you positioned in relation to the, the community and to the research participants in broader society? Right. In, in the research project. Um, so you, you have I think there's you know, a lot of, um, of questions you need to, to ask yourself. Right. Listen and be responsive. Be open to community ways of knowing, being, 
um, ways of communicating. Um, be clear about your expectations, your timelines and your requirements and, and recognize um, first and foremost community expertise, recognize their limitations and, and expectations. Stacey and Chelsea, thank you for joining us today. This has been a, a wonderful discussion and I'm excited to share it with our readers. Well, you're welcome. And, and it was our pleasure to, to be able to share some of this information with you guys and, and with the broader medical community. We think it's really important. Yes, thank you very much. I've been speaking with Dr. Chelsea Gable, Assistant Professor at McMaster University in the Department of Health, Aging and Society and the Indigenous Studies Program, and Dr. Stacey Margerison, a pediatric hematologist-oncologist at the McMaster Children's Hospital. They co-wrote an analysis article published in CMAJ with their colleague Sarah Hyatt. To read the article, visit cmaj.ca. If you've enjoyed listening to this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to CMAJ Podcasts in Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. While you're there, we invite you to listen to our many past episodes. I'm Dr. Kirsten Patrick, Deputy Editor for CMAJ. Thank you for listening. Mm -hmm.